The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. One of our bombs is missing. In the past, I've talked about aircraft that go missing, but a little while ago, Sylvie told me about a few bombs that went missing and put a little town in Oklahoma right on the map. Let me take you back to the Second World War, to the 5th of July 1943 to be precise. The 8th Air Force in Europe, the Mighty Eight, had been flying out of England with the B-17 Flying Fortress and suffering heavy losses. So back home in the United States, training to replace lost crews was going ahead apace, and none more so than at the Dalhart Army Air Base in Texas. That night, some four crews were coming close to completing their training and were getting airborne to conduct practice night bombing missions on a range near Conlon, Texas. In their bomb bays were several large practice bombs which contained nearly 100 pounds, that's 45 kilos of sand, but were tipped with 3 pounds, 1.5 kilos of explosive designed to create a realistic amount of smoke and flash for the bomber crews to see. As it got dark, with their four right cyclone turbocharged radial engines bellowing, the aircraft got airborne and set course for the range, but in one aircraft, the navigator made something of a mistake. Just a small, inaccurate reading of his map, perhaps, and they began to deviate from their desired track. As the error grew, the B-17 moved further, and further away from their destination until they were some 45 miles in error. The target that they were looking for consisted of a small square lit by four lights, one on each corner. On cue, the bombardier looked down through the glazed nose of the fortress and saw the lights in the distance and started to line the big aircraft up. He opened up the bomb bay doors and prepared to drop the first bomb. In Boise City, the inhabitants of this rural farming area were early risers, so most of the 1,200 residents had gone to bed, putting their lights out. A few young couples were walking back from the movie theatre, and in the small cafe some local folk were enjoying a last drink with some truck drivers who were shooting the breeze over a late meal. In the centre of the town was the courthouse, in front of which was a small square, lit by a few streetlights. It was around midnight when the faint drone of an aircraft was heard, but nobody took much notice until... In the B-17, the target was directly under the bomb aimer's crosshairs. All the calculations for the drop were set, the drift angle, the airspeed, the height and the wind. The Norden M-1 bombsite was a miracle of engineering. Funded by the Navy, it consisted of a small telescope mounted on a gyro-stabilising platform that kept the sighting head stable. A sophisticated mechanical computer was used to calculate the aim point, which was fed back to the site, 
automatically rotating the telescope to correct for drift and aircraft movement. The aimer could feed any residual drift he saw up to the pilot to correct his heading or in later versions directly to an autopilot. Simply moving the telescope to keep the target in view had the effect of fine-tuning the windage calculations, greatly increasing the sight's accuracy. So secret was the technology behind the sight that the US government refused to allow the sight to be purchased and used by the RAF during the war for fear that it would fall into enemy hands. Handing over the Norton bomb site had become as much a political as a technical problem and its relative merits were being publicly debated in Congress, weekly, while the Navy continued to say that the Norton was the United States' most closely guarded secret. However, the entire Norton system had already been passed to the Germans before the war started. The Norden Company had employed a German spy, Hermann W. Lang, who ran a spy ring and who was eventually arrested along with the 32 German agents he used in 1941. At exactly the right moment, the bombardier on the B-17 released his first bomb. That's it. That's it. That's it. Bombs away. The blue-painted M38A2 bomb released cleanly and fell past the open Bombay doors, hitting the cold night air. But it didn't care. As it separated from the racks, a wire pulled the pin from the spotting charge, arming the explosive packed into a canister mounted at the rear of the body. Falling free, the four fins mounted in a box at the rear of the bomb pointed it accurately towards its target. It was already doing a couple of hundred knots at release, but now with gravity pulling it downwards, it accelerated further until... It went through the roof of a garage near the town centre, digging a four-foot hole in the floor, followed by a resounding bang and cloud of smoke as the black powder charge went off. For the 1,200 inhabitants of Boise, it was a rude awakening. Completely oblivious to the ruckus that was starting below, the crew of the B-17 turned away from the target to reposition for their next attack. The bomb aimer was disappointed that he hadn't seen the flash of the spotting charge that would allow him to correct a little for the next attack, but he was confident that it had been close to the target. Below him, Forrest Bork was sleeping comfortably in his bed above the Boise City Post Office. It was his building, so he could sleep upstairs whenever he wanted. By half-past midnight on July the 5th, 1943, most of Bork's neighbours were asleep as well, but someone was awake. A crash and what sounded like an explosion jarred Bork from his peaceful sleep. Was someone trying to crack the post office safe? If so, Bork was determined to catch the crook before he could complete his criminal act. 
He kept the lights out and crept to the front window. There was a small group of men gathered in front on the sidewalk. Fred Krieger was amongst them. He was the band director for the local school and editor of the weekly Boise City News. He had leapt from his bed, thrown on some clothes and run outside to see what on earth was happening. My first thoughts, he recalled, was that it had been an enemy plane. But then he wondered why on earth an enemy would go to the trouble of bombing Boise City. Having completed their first run, the crew in the aircraft above had circled around for another attack. The second bomb began to whistle as it headed earthwards, but even the hand of the Almighty couldn't prevent this bomb from hitting the white-framed Baptist church, exploding beside the building with another loud bang which broke several windows. After seeing how deep the bomb had bored into the pavement, Fred said how glad he was that he hadn't hidden under the paper cutter in his office. What this town needs, he suggested, are some searchlights and anti-aircraft guns. As the attacks continued, Mr Bellew, the town's night watchman, was near the post office. He threw himself flat on the sidewalk, watched the sky and wished that he'd had his rifle with him as the plane made another pass over the city. Not far away, near the Cimarron County Courthouse, Colleen Jones and four girlfriends had just left the local movie theatre. Their dates were soldiers from the army base at Dalhart, where the rogue aircraft had originated. When a bomb hit the ground, Jones asked a soldier what it was. By God, it's a bomb, he replied in a dreadful American accent, and they ran away as fast as they could. By now, Pastor Dodds had reached his church, and he found the front door of his beloved chapel blown open and some of the rainbow-coloured windows broken. Later, he told a reporter, If one-fourth of the people who came to see the hole that bomb made would only attend church... In the cafe, the truck drivers realised that their vehicles presented a major danger to the town. They were gasoline fuel tankers. The drivers sprinted to their trucks, fired them up and were driving hard to get out of the city when the next bomb fell. Between the sidewalk and curb, in front of the style shop building, just a few feet away from one of the tankers. The bomb had flared up and it was dangerously close to a large underground gas tank, so Forrest Book marched over with several of the men to try and prevent an explosion. The fourth bomb also came close to striking a parked fuel transport truck, ploughing into the ground and blowing up only yards from the McGowan boarding house. The driver of a munitions truck, parked on the square, quickly dropped everything and rushed from the cafe to move his rig away as well. Still blissfully unaware of the carnage that was occurring below them, for 30 minutes the B-17 crew continued to circle around, throwing their bombs at the innocent folk of Boise City. 
Like everyone else in town, Frank Garrett, the superintendent of the Southwest Public Service Company and the man in charge of the electricity in Boise, had no idea what was happening, so he was hesitant to kill the power. Being the guy in charge of keeping the lights on would make you a little gun-shy. When the power was flowing, you wouldn't hear a peep out of anyone, and you certainly wouldn't get any thanks for a job well done. But if that power went out, even for just a second, you could count on hearing about it everywhere you went in town. Garrett wanted to get a little more information, and if you needed to get the story in Boise City after midnight, it was time to go to the Liberty Café. Five bombs had crashed into the town and there were people in the streets wearing their nightgowns and pyjamas. The bombs weren't causing the type of explosions they would normally expect, but they were still heavy chunks of metal being hurled at them from the sky at a high rate of knots. Garrett arrived at the Liberty Café and joined the other confused townspeople there. He was still unsure if he should kill the power, but the drone of the B-17 making another run made his mind up for him. Boise City needed to become invisible. Garrett and another utility company employee hopped into a pickup and sped off to the powerhouse. Before they could achieve their mission, a sixth deadly bomb whistled down from the aircraft and buried itself just outside the home of Boise City Attorney E.B. McMahon. At that point, no one had been injured in the bombing, but Garrett needed to kill the power before that plane circled around again and somebody's luck ran out. The pickup truck, carrying the two power company men, skidded to a stop at the Boise City powerhouse, and Frank Garrett made his move. Reaching the building, he fumbled for his keys, and pulling the door open, he ran inside, yanking down hard on the town's master light switch. Almost immediately, the town was covered with a safety blanket of darkness. The only remaining light that could be seen came from the last two bombs as they stuck up from the ground with their explosive charges gently burning. At the town's air raid warning office, John Adkins was on the phone. As soon as he realised what was going on, he had run to the office and grabbed the handset. He dialed the FBI in Oklahoma and, to an incredulous agent, explained what was going on. Message passed, he sent a wire to the adjutant general. Boise City bombed 1 a.m. Baptist Church garage hit. As the bombs dropped all around the sheriff's apartment inside the courthouse, he began to suspect that the unseen enemy might just be one of those practice bombers who had got lost. Powell made contact with the base at Delhart and told them to radio any planes that they had out on a practice mission and tell them to hold on to those bombs. It was either the blackout or a radio message in response to John Adkins' telegram that finally caused the B-17 crew to realise that all was not well in their world. They hightailed it back to their base at Dalhart. The people of Boise City had every right to be upset, but the general reaction was quite the opposite. 
They had endured much worse hardships during the horrible Dust Bowl years of the 1930s. They also understood that America was at war, and there was a generous spirit of teamwork amongst most citizens as their country fought to win the Second World War. Since there had been no serious damage or injury done to the town, they were willing to quickly forgive. Indeed, the accidental bombing made Boise City famous. It is the only continental American town to be bombed during the Second World War. The estimated property damage to the city was less than $25. A year after the misguided bombing of Boise, the same bomber crew led an 800-plane daylight raid on Berlin and became one of the most decorated of World War II. All of the crew members survived the war and went on to tell stories about their slightly misguided raid on a small Oklahoma town. In fact, one crew member even went on to marry a Boise City girl. For the 50th anniversary of the incident, the town erected a monument to the event, and the crew members of the bomber were invited back to Boise City. But sadly, they all declined. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.